morning. morning. My name is Pastor Daniel, uh, one of the lead pastors here. We're starting this series uh, on humility, and we called it uh, Antidote for Self because in our estimation, in my estimation, uh, the, the biggest problem that I'm ever going to face in life is me. I just, after my years now here on earth and all of the things that I face and all the difficulties and all the challenges, my biggest problem is not the economy, it's not my mortgage, it's not my bills, it's not other people, it's not being hurt. My biggest problem is me. And and, and I want to submit to you that your biggest problem is you. And we've had an influx over the course of the last year of a lot of babies. Like if you go to our nursery, it's just overflowing with infants. And we want to leave a great legacy for them, but no matter what we do, how well we do, how well we succeed in leaving a legacy for them and a foundation for them in this church, and no matter what kind of economy that they face when they get older, their biggest problem is going to be them. And your biggest problem is you. And so we want to talk about that. We want to talk about what the Bible says about that. And we want to look at the biblical recipe for how we're supposed to work on that. What is the antidote for me? What is the antidote for myself? And so uh, not only are we going to be preaching on this concept as we work through different passages in Scripture that all address the same thing over the course of the next six weeks, we're also going to read this book. Uh, It's a fairly short book for those of you that really despise reading without pictures. Uh, Very small, very quick, very easy. Six chapters, we're going to be going through this over the course of six weeks. Uh, We bought over 300 copies of this so that we could make sure you had an opportunity to get into a group and read this and take uh, a better look at yourself and what the Bible would say about humility. Now, we need to set some ground rules for this series so that we're all talking the same language. And so one of those is I want to answer the question of what is humility right off the bat. And so then we can begin to look at what the Bible will say about humility because there's a lot of misconceptions about humility as well. In fact, uh, humility in the, in the Western world, and we'll talk a little bit about how this has changed since the ancient world, but, but humility in the, in the Western world is something that we we've actually do value, but we've sort of misinterpreted. And so we've interpreted here in the West humility to really be uh, not being braggadocious. Like as long as I'm not outwardly arrogant and prideful, that kind of will match some uh, distorted view of humility. And so there are people that we look at that we just kind of, they're polarizing figures and it's generally because outwardly they show a lack of what we would call humility. And so uh, for those of you a little bit older, maybe Muhammad Ali. None of you gonna know who that is? His mama named him Cassius Clay. No, nobody? Didn't have a humble bone in his body, right? In fact, um, he's, he's famously quoted as saying at one point, uh, humble people don't get anything in this world, which I would actually assert that he's very wrong. Um, but, but that was a, a, a particular opinion of his, and, and his attitude matched that. More recently, in fact, very recently, there's a new head coach of the uh, football team at the University of Colorado. His name is Deion Sanders. And uh, he's a very polarizing figure. He's actually done a phenomenal job in a very short time at that school, and yet there's a large swath of the United States that does not like him because he is outwardly not humble, not based on our Western cultural definition of humble. Uh, Man, he is overtly confident, and so people don't like that. In the West, we kind of have this, this immediate pushback to someone that's a little bit over the top when it comes to being braggadocious. By the way, and we'll talk about this, that's new. In the ancient world, we, that was actually valued. That wasn't something that culturally we looked down on. That's a, that's a newer thing. When I say newer, I mean, you know, last 2,000 years or so. 
Last week, when we were uh, previewing this, uh, we had one of our missionaries that was in town. His family was here in the lobby. I don't know if you met Cecil Ramos and his family. Uh, He was up here for our need to know. And they asked Cecil, uh, Mark asked Cecil about this. He said, you know, what do you you think of when you think of humility? And his answer was really good. He said, uh, humility for me is having a right perspective of myself, uh, who, who God sees me as, not too high, not too low, but to see myself the way that God sees me. And I think that's a, that's a really good starting point for definition. We're going to go a little bit further than that. That's good. It does absolutely require right perspective. The problem with right perspective is uh, it's easy to say right perspective, but it needs to lead a little bit further. And so we're going we're gonna to see if we can dive into this. In the West, and so I'm going to keep ca- talking about Western civilization because this does not actually match uh, sort of ancient times, uh, whether it's Hebrews or Babylonians or uh, Assyrians or, or the Roman Empire. That, that culture was very different than what we have here in the West now. In the West, we have largely come up with a working definition around humility as a culture from these three words that, that really are the base words uh, that, that we base all of humility off of, one in Greek, one in Hebrew, and one in Latin. The first, the Greek word is uh, tapinos, the Hebrew word is anawa, and the Latin word is humilitas. That probably is the one that's easiest to recognize, humilitas. Uh, those three words really are at the root of what we see and define as humility in Western culture. All three of those root words mean to be low. They just mean to be low. Now, when used in a negative connotation, they mean to be put low. So someone put you low, they put you down, they placed you in this low position, uh, not of your own volition, and so all of that has negative connotation. Uh, connotation. So, so to be humiliated does not sound very good, right? No one came in today and was like, you know what I hope the pre- uh, pastor does, I hope he calls me out in the middle of the sermon to humiliate me. <laughs> Wasn't on anyone's mind? No, no, no nobody? Why, because we all know, to, to be humiliated, ah, no. But in a positive way, when it's used positive, it means to voluntarily, of one's own volition, lower one's self. To lower one's self. All three of these words mean the same thing. So we're going to use this working definition. This comes from a book by uh, John Dixon called Humilitas. And, and this is his definition. I really like this definition. This would be a little bit more of a secular definition for humility that is accurate. It says this. Humility is the noble choice to forego your status, deploy your resources, or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. It's pretty good, yeah? Humility is a noble choice to forego your status, deploy your resources, or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. Now, this definition presupposes three things that are gonna be pretty important for us in the next six weeks to work through. It presupposes that you have dignity. Do you see that? Why? Because you cannot lower something that's already at the bottom. If we had no dignity, being children of the king, being princes and princesses, that's right, you actually are a princess, you can put that bumper sticker on your your car, lady, it's fine. If, if, if we did not have dignity, we could not lower ourselves. So it presupposes that as a child of the king, you have dignity. You're part of royalty. Second, secondly, 
humility, not humiliation, humility is a willing, voluntary choice. That we're presupposing that. So you need to hear that as we work over the course of the next six weeks. We're choosing humility. It's not being forced upon us. That would be humiliation. Humility, a voluntary choice. And the third thing is humility is social. You really can't practice humility in a vacuum. It's relational. The very nature of it, and yes, there are some internal things, we'll talk about that perspective and everything else, but, but, but the very nature of humility is in relationship with other people. So if you were a hermit in a cave, it, humility doesn't really matter at all because it never would impact another person. So humility presupposes your dignity, it's voluntary, and it's social. Uh, and you can jot that down. We have a lot of notes because this is week one, so just keep those pens ready. It's, here's why it's more than Cecil's definition, which is a good definition, and here's why uh, John Dixon gets a little bit closer to the idea of biblical humility, and that is this. In, in the Bible particularly, right perspective always has to lead to right action. It, it can never just be right perspective. So if someone talks about humility as a viewpoint or a perspective or a way I see myself and I, the way I see God, that's good, but if it does not lead to right action, it's not actually right perspective. In the same way that faith without works is dead, right? You guys have heard faith without works is dead from, from somewhere, right? Some, somewhere really wise, yeah? And, and, and that matters. It doesn't mean that faith's not important. It just means, I, I, I once heard a Francis Chan say, uh, faith without works is like you giving your kids a puppy, but you gave them a dead puppy. Not much of a gift, is it? It's still a puppy. Yeah, I gave you a puppy. Yeah, it's, it's, it's dead, <laughs> Faith without works is dead. Right perspective without right action does not matter. It's useless. So, so humility is more than just right perspective. It's right perspective that then leads to a right action. So we're gonna use this working definition over the next six weeks for biblical humility. Biblical humility is more than right perspective. It's right dependence. And this word, dependence, is going to matter a lot over the next six weeks. I hope to change your misconception that you have from living in Western American culture about humility. Humility is not going to be, well, if I was just less outwardly arrogant. That is not biblical humility. That's cultural humility. And I believe that was the definition for humility just like you did because I was raised here. But that's not what the Bible's gonna say. Biblical humility is more than right perspective, it's right dependence. You're gonna see it in the text today, we're gonna see it in the text for six weeks. I'm gonna give you these five points. I'm really not gonna go over these till the end, but I'm just gonna leave them up here on the slide and let you write them down now in case you can't get them all down later. I'm giving you like a heads up because we never leave the slides up long enough. Five things, five things that we're gonna end with at the end of the sermon. Admit my default is always me. My default is always Daniel. It's never anybody else. If I tell you that, I'm lying to you. Learn from Jesus' example to me. Trust that God is judge and jury of fairness for me. Desire that God uses me because we don't naturally want to be poured out and experience, this is our goal, experience freedom from me. 
antidote for self. All right, we're going to go over those at the very end. The Bible is going to explain to us that right action from humility is primarily demonstrated as a reliance on God in a couple of areas that will not come naturally to you or I because of sin. In the, the Western uh, world, an in-depth review, so, so uh, I'm going to read you this from uh, Collins book, uh, 2009, How the Mighty Fall Bears Out. Uh, this is a bestseller for leadership in Fortune 500 organizations. And, and I just want you to read you this expert, ex- excerpt. <clears throat> An in-depth review of the leaders of the most successful organizations. Now, these are Fortune 500 companies that outperformed all other Fortune 500 companies by at least three times over a 15-year period meaning companies that grew so substantially and so fast over a decade and a half that they made everybody else look bad. CEOs of the fastest, most successful growing companies almost all were marked by the presence of a great amount of humility. We were surprised, shocked really, to discover the type of leadership required for turning a good company into a great one. Compared to high-profile leaders with big personalities who make headlines and become celebrities, the good to great leaders seem to have come from Mars. Self-effacing, quiet, reserved, even shy. These leaders are a paradoxical blend of personal humility and professional will. They are more like Lincoln and Socrates than Patton or Caesar. This is from Collins' book in 2009. What you need to understand that most of us don't is that humility was not appealing in the ancient world. So if we go back to the Roman Empire, to the Assyrian Empire, to the Babylonian Empire, to the Egyptian Empire, humility was not anything that was culturally relevant. No one wanted to be humble. No one wanted to be seen as humble. It was about honor and recognition, and they were held in high regard. And the cultures, all these cultures, for centuries hated the idea of humility. And this may seem a little bit odd because right now, I explained earlier, we kind of have a pushback to someone that's too braggadocious, too prideful, too arrogant, but they didn't in the ancient world. They didn't dislike bravado. And that sounds maybe a little bit silly because of how outlandish we have personalities today, right? In our culture, we have some very outlandish personalities. There's an election coming, I don't know, But consider how much we enjoy when a prideful person is humbled. I mean, America's national pastime is watching things burn. (laughs) Right? We love to see the person that was a little too arrogant, a little too over, a little too over the top, just crash and burn, and we're like, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh, got what he deserved. Western culture has really embraced this idea, this concept of humility, and historically, that's actually very different than the ancient world. So there's a university decided to do a study. Like, when did this shift? Thousands of years where it was about honor and recognition, and now in in Western society, we really have this value for humility that we've never had in the past. Where did it come from? Not only did did all of the research point back to Judeo-Christian values, it actually pointed to a significant moment in history, a single moment in history in which everything began to change and actually move toward humility and away from recognition. In his book, Humilitas, John Dixon says this in in chapter six. It's called Cruciform, How a Jew from Nazareth Redefined Greatness. 
Here's the quote. So what happened? How did the culture move from being one that prized public honor and despised lowering yourself before an equal, let alone a lesser person, to one that despises self-aggrandizement and prizes lowering yourself for others? Where did humility come from? Dixon goes on to say, it wasn't that Jesus taught a great deal on humility directly, although he did speak of it occasionally and he certainly lived a humble life. But it wasn't what most people took from his teaching when he walked on earth. What changed was the cross. And not simply the fact that Jesus would willingly go to the cross. The cross was the worst way to die. The cross was only reserved for the worst criminals, for sedition, for rebels. Uh, the, the, the cross, no Roman citizen was even allowed to go to the cross. Like, like you, you, the cross was professional torture, perfected. It was grueling, it was humiliating. And this idea that God's son would willingly go to the cross to excruciating pain, to shame and humiliation just did not make sense in a culture that valued recognition and honor. Why would God choose to go to the cross? That had to be reckoned with by his followers, according to Dixon. And the first real explanation of how we begin to shape this change in humility happened about 61 AD in a letter from one of his disciples to one of the churches that had begun forming as they followed him in a town called Philippi. And that passage, the central passage, the beginning of the movement toward humility, according to Dixon in this book and this university, is our passage for today, which is Philippians 2, 1 through 13. So let's read. This is going to be a continuation from a thought that Paul is expressing in chapter one. He's gonna pick it up in chapter two and continue. In chapter one, by the way, he's really been talking about uh, unity. He's been addressing how they treat one another and then he's going to launch into an explanation about how the church, how you and I can attain unity with people who are different than ourselves. Here's what he says. So, linking the last thought, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So because of what Christ has done, the church, you and I, need to be unified in our thought, in our feelings, in how we treat one another, and how we think. Now that doesn't tell us how to do it, it just tells us what we're supposed to do. Verse three, and this is where it gets tough. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, Count others more significant than yourselves. I don't know about you, but I don't really like that part. Nobody else? Because I'm really good at counting myself as more significant than others. But counting others as more significant than me, let's, let's slow our horses down a little. So first off, selfish ambition and conceit or pride are seen as synonyms here. And, and, and right off the bat, we go, whoa, what's wrong with selfish ambition? 
We have a culture built on selfish ambition. We have an economy built on selfish ambition. We have a lifestyle built on selfish ambition. What are you talking about? Don't you have goals? You probably set some right before January 1st every year just so you can not do them. We all have goals. Most of our goals are about who? Who? Me. About me. I don't set a lot of goals for you. I set a lot of goals for me. Why? Selfish ambition. I'm trying to work on me. And Paul just said that if your goals are for you, they might be wrong. The kicker is that he's not saying count others equal as you, because at least I might be able to get there. No, I'm supposed to count others as more significant than me. In fact, he's going to double down on that. Look what he says in verse 4. In verse 4, he's going to say this. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So now, wait a minute. Other people are more important than me, and their interests are more important? Mm. I want you to consider the phrase, the phrase that he uses here. Consider others more important than yourself, not equitable. Here's why this is a big deal. Um, We're a culture that is consumed with the idea of equity. No? I mean, equality is like uh, all men are created in the Bible, right? We've built a country and a society and a culture on the idea that we're all equal. We're all equal. And then you open the Bible. And it says, no. No, you're going to count others as more than you. Whoa, 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 whoa. That's not very American. Did Jesus not read the Declaration of Independence? <laughs> Jesus, that's not very patriotic at all. I like to picture my Jesus is wrapped in an American flag and walking around. How can the Bible tell me to consider others as more than myself if we're all equal? Here's what we're getting down to the root of when we ask this question. Who decides fairness? Because right now for you and for me, you know who decides fairness? Who has two thumbs and decides fairness? This guy. Right? Right? You're telling me that you don't think about situations in your life, conversations, situations, the guy cutting you off in traffic, uh, how much you have to pay for something, what kind of deal you got, who got the promotion, who got the raise. You don't think about what's fair? You think about what's fair every single day. You think about what's fair and what's not fair multiple times a day. In fact, most of your moral judgment comes from you emotionally thinking about what's fair and not fair. We're a culture obsessed with equality, and we all think that we're the judges of fairness. And it's our job to make sure that everything's fair, because fair is another way to say justice. Doesn't God want justice? Clearly, God wants justice, therefore, things need to be fair. Do you see the logical fallacy there? 
We just made ourselves the judge of justice and fairness. But the Bible's gonna say that's, that's actually not your job. That's not your role. I didn't ask you to do that. So who decides fairness? See, this, this statement that you should count others as more than yourself, more significant than you, this should start a lot of questions in our mind about how we were raised, about everything that we've been taught in our culture, in our education system, in the way that we govern, in the way that we live, in, the, in our economy, everything about how we live in the Western world. We would, we would need to question if we really thought, if we really, really thought, and this is where right perspective would have to lead, to lead to life change, if we really thought that others were more significant than ourselves. We have some lifestyle problems, if that's true. Because very few of us live like that even a little bit, let alone consistently. Now, verse five Paul's going to tell you how to get there. Verse five. Here we go. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, have this mind, depending on what translation you have, can be translated differently. Have this mind. Have this attitude. Think this way. Claim this perspective which is yours in Christ Jesus. So it is both an attitude, you need to live this way, you need to think this way, and it is a perspective that you're gonna hold on to, right? You're gonna to have to hold on to the way of thinking here. And this is a command, not a suggestion, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. Does that mean uh, it, it, it's required because of Christ Jesus and what he's done, or does it mean that it's in, it, empowered because he gives us the power to do it? Yes. Yes, it is required because of what Christ has done, and we can only do it because it is empowered by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. To drive this home, this idea that we should count others as more significant than ourselves, he's gonna tell us, have this perspective change in Christ Jesus, and then he's going to use Jesus as the example, and he's gonna use Jesus as the example by reciting what was a hymn, a song, that they used to sing in the early church. Now, we don't know if he wrote the song or not, but this was common, a song that was uh, used over and over again in the first century. So it starts in verse six. In Christ Jesus, verse six, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count, here's the word we love, equality with God a thing to be grasped. That Greek word, morphe, meaning form of God. You could also say, who, though he was the very nature of God, it's also used in verse seven in just a second to explain the incarnation when it says that he was in the form of a servant. He was the very nature of a servant, meaning in physical form and in the way he acted, in his attitude, he was a servant. The same way here, he was God. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, I want you to just consider something. It, it's not just that Jesus was in the form of God. It's not just that Jesus could have been God. Jesus is God. Like we go, go, go throughout scripture to look at the nature of the Trinity. Jesus is God. They are co-equal. So, so explain this to me. If they're co-equal, then, then, then how would it be fair 
for Jesus to not count his equality with God. Like, to say he's not going to count his equality is to say he's ignoring reality because he is equal. You're going to turn your back on the fact that you are equal. Yes, voluntarily, willingly. We're talking about why it would be hard for me to think about someone else and count them as more than myself. And Jesus is saying, what the Bible's telling us about Jesus is that he is equal and he wouldn't even count his equality as a thing to be grasped. He would put off his equality. Verse seven, here's why, here's how and why. Verse seven, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men, baby Jesus, and being found in human form, he, there's humbled again, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the humility revolution. This is what Paul is pointing at, at the seminal point in all of history, and when, when we went from valuing honor and recognition to looking at what Christ did on the cross and saying, we're not to grasp for equality. We're not to, to strain for honor. We're not to strain for recognition. God will do those things if we will submit and be obedient. The book Humilitas will say, Jesus turned honor and shame on their heads in the greatest reversal of all cultural norms in one moment. Honor has been redefined and greatness recast. Jesus doesn't say, why would I go down and humble myself to become human and die in pain and agony on a cross? He submits to the will of the Father. He trusts that the Father will look out for him. His submission and obedience to God is a dependence in a bunch of areas. A dependence that God will reward him. A dependence that God will act on his behalf and has his best interests in mind. Jesus goes from being all-powerful. Understand who Jesus is. All things were created by Jesus and through Jesus, and because of Jesus, all things even exist today. So if Jesus created all the stars and all the solar systems and all the universe you could ever see, and if he felt like he could fold it up and put it in his back pocket, that's how powerful Jesus is. He emptied himself of power to walk as a man on earth and die a humiliating death. And to do that, he had to trust that God would protect him until that point, that God had his best interest in mind, that God had our best interest in mind, that God's will was worth it and Jesus' will wasn't. There is a dependence on the Father that is necessary to give up the idea of equality. And let me tell you why that is so foreign for us. Well, let me explain this way. Um, how many of you guys took high school economics? Anybody? It's a surprisingly few number of people. Might explain some of the problems with the economy right now. The first thing that I learned in high school economics was an acronym called WIFM. Anyone get, got uh, taught WIFM? What's in it for me? Woo! Where's my WIFM? Come on, y'all. No one else got taught WIFM in school? 
This is the first lesson in economics. Why? Because we're a capitalistic society. Why is the most successful, listen, it is indisputable that capitalism is the most successful economic system in the history of the world. Bar none. More technological advancements, more wealth, more efficiency, more productivity, more gain, more social. Like, you can look at all kinds of evils about capitalism, and there's plenty of evils, but listen, the, <laughs> the alternatives are terrible. You want to go look at what's happened with communism or socialism? Nothing compares to capitalism. And I'm not telling you it's good. I'm telling you it's effective, and it's effective because it's built on whiffum. What's in it for me? You see, the reason capitalism is so incredibly successful is because you can always be dependent on making the choice that's best for you. And by default, because we're sinful right here, every single one of us at the core is sinful, the one economic system that of course is gonna work is the one that is dependent on you being selfish. Congratulations, it's working. The economic systems that are dependent on you making a choice for the better of the community all fail. Hmm. Wonder why that is. Wonder why all of the wonderful principles of socialism and communism, which actually, in essence, if you, if you look at them, would seem amazing. Oh, they, they could be so honorable in theory. And then you and I get involved. And do what? Make the decisions that are best for us. With them. The reason capitalism works is because you and I are evil, selfish little creatures that always look out for us. And we built an economic system on it, and it works. Is it good? No. Is it honorable? Absolutely not. Are there abuses of it? Of course, you and I are involved. But if you ask to build an economic system based on you and I making honorable choices, well, that's gonna fail. In order to live with ourselves and justify this types of behavior, we wrote an entire document justifying all of the things that I get to fight for and protect in my individual rights. And I call it the Bill of Rights. And we'll defend it with guns. No? Why? What's in it for me? We build an entire country, an entire culture, an entire economic system that rules the world off a single concept, what's in it for me. And then we open the Bible, and the Bible says, listen, if you really want to live in peace and joy and contentment and satisfaction, you're gonna have to kill that. What? How dare you? How dare, Jesus, have I told you about the First Amendment? I don't, I feel like you haven't read it. As, let me give an example. Uh, early Acts, the church comes together, right? I'm talking about Acts, end of chapter one, two, three. Uh, people are all saved. The Holy Spirit is just indwelling all these people. They're coming to faith by thousands. And all of a sudden, you turn to the end of the chapter and it says this, uh, everyone in the church is sharing everything they have and no one is calling their own possessions their own. And I've actually heard this. I'm not, I am not exaggerating. I've actually heard a Christian look at it and go, sounds like communism to me. <laughs> and they were like, they're essentially saying like, boy, you don't, wanna, you don't wanna touch that thing, you know? You might, you might have some USSR flags in there or something. And I was like, 
as an American pastor, I'm just trying to tell you that it's so easy to see the tension, the clash of cultures between what the Bible is going to point to and what our American culture is going to point to. And it is just insidious because that culture has crept into every little avenue of our life and it comes into the church all the time. And you constantly have to get to the Bible and go, hey, hey, that thing you're saying, I know it sounds really American, but it's really unbiblical. We did, a, we did a survey a few years ago, and um, one of the things we did is we, we used to charge money uh, at the coffee shop, and we just thought, that's just a weird thing, right? So we just stopped doing all that stuff, and I actually had someone write a comment in. They were really angry that we no longer charged them for their coffee. I am not exaggerating. They were mad, and they're like, this type of socialistic behavior is never going to work in the church. And I was like, you're not reading this. It already has. It's in Acts. They're just literally giving stuff away to feed people and help people and bringing them into their homes and, and treating them like they're family, even when they're not family, even when they're foreign. And you want to get charged for coffee? Everything about our American rights and freedoms and economic systems and, and, and culture, not that, that, that all of it is bad, I just want you to know that everything about it is rooted in individualism. And so when it comes to that, the culture is not your friend. The culture is not your friend. Listen to me, the culture is not your friend. I'm not saying everything about it is evil, I'm telling you it's not your friend. What Jesus does here in, in trust and obedience to the Father leads to the father rewarding him. And this is the dependence. He didn't just have to depend on God while he was uh, incarnate. He was, didn't, wasn't just depending on the father's plan. He was depending on the father for the reward. And it, it's here in verse nine, okay? The Bible's spelling it out for us. Therefore, so because Jesus humbled himself, because he did not look at equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but yet emptied himself in the form of a servant, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's a reward. So Jesus, because Jesus who had power, who had equality with God, put his dependence in the Father and submitted to the Father and obeyed the Father, the Father will reward him. This is what I'm trying to tell you. You and I have to stop worrying about what's fair for us. You have to stop worrying about what's fair for you. Because biblical humility says, put your dependence in God, he's just and good and faithful to take care of it. And if you don't, if you don't believe that, then you don't believe what Jesus is doing here. Because that's what he did. And he was actually equal with God, and you and I aren't. Think about what happened in the Garden of Eden. Satan is not equal with God. 
But he wants to be equal. He wants to grasp that equality that he doesn't even have. And so that leads to his destruction. He's cast out of heaven and he comes to the garden. And Adam and Eve are completely dependent on God. They walk with God. He's provided everything. Everything's good. There's no sin. Everything's wonderful. They're not equal with God. And what does Satan sell them? You could be equal with God. You could be like God. That equality with God is something to be grasped. You should grab it. Grab it. Grab it. Take it. For you. Whiff them. And they do. They want equality with God, not dependence on God. And it's why you and I are here today dealing with the same problems. They spurned his design of being dependent on him. Now, we think all this is wonderful, all this is a little bit theoretical, um, but let me explain how insidious this is in your life and in mine. Uh, this week, I had somebody from outside the church that I work with send me a text. I hate conflict over text. I think it's the most passive aggressive thing ever. It's just like social media. If you can't say it in front of somebody, don't say it, right? Send me a text. Essentially, hey, this thing you did, very innocuous, no idea. No, no one would think this was a bad thing. But this thing you did was highly disrespectful to me. Don't ever do it again. Oh, okay. Now, my first was shocked that, that this thing was disrespectful. I, I had no idea. But you know what immediately popped up afterwards? How dare you? <laughs> like, you, the person's like the most disrespectful person in the workplace who loves poking people's buttons, right? Pressing buttons and loves being like kind of the, the guy who just like throws it in people's faces. You who loves to disrespect people, you're going to tell me that I'm disrespectful? 